Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, May 29th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by MHZ Choice, which features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. Try MHZ Choice free for 30 days and save 50% off your first month when you visit mhzchoice.com minds and use the code minds at checkout. That's mhzchoice.com M-I-N-D-S. So I have a confession. I am a TV and movie addict. I will binge almost anything on Netflix. I will go out to any science fiction movie. I am a huge fan of the genre. But there's one thing that grates on me more than anything else is when there is bad science reflected in those movies. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, nothing sort of breaks the suspension of disbelief quicker than you know that they've just got something wrong. And I'm not going to see Guardians of the Galaxy to learn about quantum mechanics. Like, let's not overstate things. But when they like don't get the gravity right of a spaceship, it kind of just draws me out of the story a little bit. And I've wondered how writers... Uh, approach this idea of incorporating good science into their stories because there is such a history, especially when you watch 80s and 90s TV, of terrible, terrible science in many of these stories. Is this something you can relate to? Yeah, like when Morgan Freeman at the beginning of Lucy talks about the 10% brain myth, it's like immediately it ruins the movie for me because now I just know that, okay, we're going we're gonna to start this whole premise on something that has been debunked for decades. Uh, and if you even mention the word the core, I basically will go into convulsions. But beyond like the stuff that's really bad, I think there's some just subtle things that can be improved in a lot of just everyday things from comedies on down the line. And this week, I'm talking to a comedy writer of all people to talk about how he incorporates science into 
a lot of shows where you don't expect science to be at the front. So this week we have on Mike Drucker. He's a comedy writer, stand-up. He formerly worked on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. He's written, he's been on SNL. He's written for a number of outlets. Currently, he's writing for the show Adam Ruins Everything on True TV, which is a show that has featured a lot of Inquiring Minds guests and incorporates a lot of scientists and science. Um, He was the co-head writer for Bill Nye's Netflix show, Bill Nye Saves the World. And he's working with me on a new Star Wars project that focuses on science in the context of Star Wars. And we had a ranging conversation about how to incorporate science into these things in subtle ways that improves the story and those areas of science where he will never, ever, ever touch. Well, it sounds like a little bit like the weekend that I just had. I just came back from this uh, retreat in Tucson where the National Academy of Sciences took uh, handpicked 15 scientists and 15 directors who were interested in science. And they essentially dropped us in this little resort in Tucson and, you know, hilarity ensued. Like movie directors, directors? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, well, I mean, do I name drop? Or Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> What's the point of having a podcast if you don't name drop? Yeah, like, you know, the director of Deadpool, uh, a director of Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones, uh, director of, well, you know, Naked Gun and Airplane and a whole bunch of other things between a couple Disney people, um, you know, really interesting group of individuals and really diverse. And I have to say, like, can I just make a shout out to the National Academy of Sciences? It was 60% women. And there were a lot of people of color. We always welcome shout outs to the National Academy of Sciences on this podcast. So with that, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Mike Drucker. This episode is sponsored by MHZ Choice. MHZ Choice features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. Are you a fan of Scandinavian crime fiction like I am? Do you like authors like Yo Nesbo and Stieg Larsson? Well, MHZ essentially brings work by these authors and many other great writers to your favorite device. You can watch award-winning series like Spiral or Detective Montalbano, Volander, many more. They also have TV adaptations of some of the world's other best crime fiction writers like Agatha Christie or Donna Leone. They add new content each week, so you always have something new to watch. And everything, of course, comes with English subtitles. Personally, I've been enjoying Spiral. It's a French drama series, so it lets me keep up with my French. But if I'm too tired, I can always read the subtitles. It's a gritty crime drama with a lot of really memorable and interesting and well-rounded characters. You can watch Spiral and everything else, the entire MHC Choice library, which includes over 2,500 hours of binge-worthy TV, for only $7.99 a month. Try MHC Choice free for 30 days, and after that, you'll save 50% off your first month. Visit mhzchoice.com minds and use the code minds at checkout. That's mhzchoice.com m-i-n-d-s. And we want to thank them for sponsoring this podcast. So when you support our sponsors, you're also supporting our work. Thank you. Mike Drucker, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hey, thank you for having me. So I want to like rewind a little bit for people. You're you're really a stand-up comic that transitioned to the writing room. When did the word science ever emerge as something that you thought about? You know, I grew up with stuff like Bill Nye and Beekman's World. In fact, I think as a kid, I was I was a bigger Beekman's World fan than I was a Bill Nye fan. 
um, just because it was like a much sillier show that was like aimed at a slightly younger audience, which I was. And like, I remember even like Nickelodeon when I was a kid would show things like Mr. Wizard's World, you know, when an old man would invite children into his house and show them science, which now seems horrifying. But back then as a show was like a really fun show as a kid because you're like, that oh, was a like great show. It don't was a great don't show. sell it like that because you can find episodes on YouTube and it's a great watch still. There's it, a lot of experiments you can do from that show. It was such a great show. Um, it was so much fun to watch. And like, yeah, stuff like Beekman's World where you'd like find out how to do like easy science experiments at home or Bill Nye. And, you know, I don't think I was a super smart kid at least until maybe later on. And I think those shows really got me interested in learning, especially when I was, you know, I was going to like public schools in South Florida, which don't necessarily always have the most funding. But coming up in the 90s and early 2000s in the comedy scene, was that a word you would hear people talk about science? It's not what I sort of associate with it, but some of the best science communicators in the world happen to be comedians nowadays. So I'm not yeah. sure. Um. It wasn't something I didn't think about. Like, I definitely, I remember actually posting on Facebook sometime, and it must have been like 2005 or six. I only started comedy in 2005. Uh, only or slash I've been doing it forever. I don't know which that is. Um, but I remember like early on, like on Facebook, I was like, oh, I wish I could just do like, like a Discovery Channel comedy show. And like, there was like three or four people that's like, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> that's a terrible idea. And I was like, okay. Like, and it was just me like on Facebook saying what I wanted to do. It wasn't like, this is my goal. Um, but I even remember like when I had started comedy being like, oh, it'd, cool to, it'd be cool to do something like educational. And when you were in the writer's room for Fallon, would would you have license to be like, I want to do something, you know, mildly educational besides making people laugh? Was that welcome in rooms like that? It's not that it wasn't welcome. It just didn't fit the format that they wanted for that show, you know, which I guess is like another way of saying welcome. But it wasn't like they like hated ideas like that. It was just when you're pitching shows for shows like that, you're limited by what the show wants to do, you know, and that show wanted, you know, what made it successful and what still makes it successful is that it's like sort of a fun, cool show that you can just watch and relax to. And I think, uh, you know, when you want to do something like educational, you know, and, and that's not really even doing it justice because on the show we would do like monologues, which were ostensibly supposed to be like, you know, you set it up and you tell what the story is and you sort of explain it. But we never did like deep dives on topics. Although, you know, they would do stuff that was very late night. Like they'd have animal experts over and they would have like, you know, uh, Josh Topolsky come in with like new tech gadgets. So there was like a slight sort of learning element, but it definitely wasn't a deep dive. But then you'd have people like Colbert, who I think 538 did an analysis of Colbert guests. And he was right. up there with like Charlie Rose in terms of like late night hosts having on scientists on their show. Do you think that had any sort of influence on the industry as a whole? Like, yeah, we could do this kind of stuff. Oh, I mean, I think I think that definitely helped. And I think The Daily Show helped. But, you know, you mean like look back to stuff like Dick Cavett, you know, or, you know, I don't. I'm not a conservative, but William F. Buckley was doing that sort of thing, you know, and getting a lot of press for it. So I don't think it's a totally new thing. I just think that, you know, what's nice about there being so many late night shows now is that there can be very different late night shows that serve different audiences and different needs. You know, there can be the people who are watching like, you know, Seth or Samantha B, and they want that like hard hitting political stuff, which I which I like. And I know there's also people, you know, like who can just sort of relax and watch something like a Corden or a Jimmy where they sort of, or Jimmy Fallon, where they sort of, you know, like, have fun and just, like, don't think about how terrible the world is. Like, some people want to joke about how terrible the world is, and some people don't want to think about how terrible the world is. And, you know, there's a market for both. 
How did you get from a show like Fallon over to shows like Adam Ruins Everything, which is going to have a much more significant focus on academics and education and science and and having you know people from just a whole different world uh, as um, a core part of the show? Well. I've been friends with Adam for a long time. So I actually was in a D&D group with Adam for about a year. <laughs> that so, is not true. That's absolutely true. And our DM is uh, is like a court. Now he's now a court writer named uh, Jared Logan, who's a brilliant comedian. Like it's all this. There was a weird in New York. There was like a comedian's D&D game that was very fun. And uh, and so when Adam got the show, I was like, oh, God, that's perfect. And I, and I begged him for like two years to let me help out with the show. And eventually, like, you know. I was brought in to do like a little bit of punch up on like, you know, the election special. And by punch up, I mean, like I sat in a room and I was like, oh, this is perfect. You guys are great. And so I just sort of begged them to hire me and they were very nice enough to hire me. And it was a super great experience. Um, you know, I was like it was right after I'd finished Bill Nye and I was like a little bit burnt out from doing such an intense, like short schedule that, you know, I I, I didn't know if I want to take a break from like writing for a little bit and like, you know, do something for myself. And the opportunity to do Adam show came along and I really had to do it. So by the time you came to Adam show, sort of the aesthetic of the show had largely been set. And for yeah. our listeners that may not know Adam show because it's on true TV and it's not always the easiest to find. Can you set up what Adam show is about? So Adam show, which is very closely based on the real Adam, uh, is about this guy who like goes around and ruins misconceptions. Um, I think it's been compared to, the Penn and Teller's Penn and Teller's old show on Showtime, but it's a lot less mean. It's a lot. It's not less like you're an idiot and you should feel bad about it. And a lot more like, hey, like I know that we all tell ourselves that this is true, but in fact, it's only a recent development or it's not true at all. And it's really fun because, you know, it does a lot of things that I like, a lot of things that I really like, like it shows sources on the screen for every fact they state. And, you know, it takes it takes surprising angles on subjects. You know, it'll do things like, you know, they did an episode saying that, like, not all like buying an electric car isn't automatically green, which is a very controversial stance to take. And they also took a stance on saying, like, you know, perhaps uh, very carefully regulated hunting could actually be good for endangered species, you know, which is a very controversial position to take. But it's always backed by data. It's not like, you know, it's not like Bill Maher or something where Adam's trying to shock somebody. He's like, a very and this is very much who he is as a person is a very calm, logical person who looks at all the data and makes a very smart decision. So and then, you know, we wrap that very logical, smart decision in sort of a fun character that you can relate to. I guess uh, maybe I shouldn't be shocked by this, but like the idea of a comedy writer being like, I'm really dig citations on the screen seems yeah. a little funny to me. Like, has it always been that way for you? Or is this just refreshing and a, and a little bit different is why you dug it? I mean, I got a master's degree in English lit, so I've always been okay with research. Like, I've, I've never had a problem with academia or research. To me, it's more fun. Like, that's the weird thing is people will, you know, be like, you know, but you have to do so much like research and reading for it. And I'm like, yeah, it's great. Like, you get to read about things and learn things, then make jokes about those things. And, you know, like, obviously, like, Sometimes sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But for me, it's really fun. You know, I like and that's what I kind of liked, you know, about writing monologue jokes or writing jokes. You know, when I was a, a contributing writer to Weekend Update, you know, it's like I get to process this new information and then write something about it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But to me, that's so exciting and so much more fun than necessarily just like writing a joke for myself about like dating, you know? Mm hmm. So, uh. 
take us into the writer's room at Adam Ruins Everything, first and foremost, where there's this heavy influence of of research and citations. Is it comedian writers that are staffing this room and you have to do the research or is there is there, you know, scientists sitting there alongside you? There's 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 a team of researchers that work closely with the writers and everyone's in the same room. Everyone's pitching out ideas and everyone's also doing research. Like it's not like the comedians it's not like the comedians come in at noon and then there's like a stack of papers. It's much more collaborative than that. It's just that there's comedians who are like you know, it's almost like you have a team where like one player specializes in like making a story about this and one sp- player specializes in like what a fun example of the, uh, like a funny metaphor will be. And one player specializes in knowing that like, oh, this paper seems true, but it's actually old and negated by all these recent papers. So it's really a team effort. And it's really cool to see because like somebody be like, you know, you'll do stuff like, is this true? And then everyone's like, maybe it is. And then you'll look into it. You know, and it's hard, too, because you'll like you'll be very convinced that something's a great story. Like you'll be like, this is a great thing to debunk. It'll make fun television. There's a lot of jokes to write about it. And then you'll research it and find out that what you're talking about isn't true and you have to start over. Um, But that's what also I think is valuable about the show is it doesn't just say, oh, crap, we already did this. So let's just pretend it's right. It's very, very based on what the what the most up to date research says. What was it like working with? Uh, scientists, because you're not just writing for Adam, you're writing for yeah. all of the characters on the show who are oftentimes experts. And um, a majority of the time, those experts happen to be scientists. Yeah, uh, they're great. Talking to experts is a lot of fun because you get to like, you get to be like, okay, you for, okay, first of all, backing up, a lot of the things we talk about are very narrow slices. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like um, on Adam's show, it's not like we're talking about like, here is the history of the ocean. You know what I mean? Like, it's a very, very narrow thing. So when you yeah, talk you to an expert on it. Yeah, one specific coral on this reef kind of. Exactly. Expert. Yeah. And the cool thing is using that metaphor, like, you know, if you talk to like, there's a there's a billion oceanographers. But if you talk to like one guy who studies one specific coral in one part of South Florida, like he's going to be so thrilled that you care about his research. And those are like the experts we talk to were the people who are doing very narrow research or who had a very narrow specific knowledge. And they're so excited to talk to you because it's, you know, it's not like your usual like razzle dazzle TV topic. And I don't mean like they were like, oh, these humble people is like they were like they're like, great. Someone values our research. Cool. We'll work with you. We'll be on camera. We really want to help you out. And also, I think, you know, we try we we do jokes about them and do joke intros. But we also we're very careful to tell them, like, everything that you say, we want you to be okay with it. You know what I mean? Like, we're not like trying to like make you look foolish. We're not trying to make your research look bad. This isn't a gotcha interview. It's not like some 60 minutes interview where we like catch somebody lying. It's like, we want you to look good because we believe in you enough to put you on camera and like help us out with this. And the network is supportive of that kind of stuff. I mean, there's this impression I have that networks are like, no, if it's not entertaining at every single moment, it's not worth, you know, airing. Um, no, I mean, True TV is super supportive. Uh, you know, like I've only had limited interaction with them as far as notes on my episodes and all of their notes are always reasonable. You know, their notes aren't like, well, why doesn't this character wear a hat? It's always like, OK, but, you know, in your argument, you say this is true. But then you say that this is true. And that seems to slightly contradict this. Could you explain that to us? And sometimes you'd look at it and you'd be like, oh, I'm doing such a poor job explaining this. All right, we'll fix it. Or you're like, oh, I see where the misconception is. It's over here. So they were super they were great and collaborative on it. Overall, do you, I mean, there's so many comedians now that seem to be doing um, smart humor that intersects the world of science, whether it's like 
Patton Oswalt, Paul F. Tompkins, or even one of my favorite, Rachel Bloom, who's been on Adam's show and happened right. to MC a March for Science. That's how into it she is. Um, right. Is there like a, a shift happening in terms of, of the comedy scene, in terms of how they're approaching this? It seems like science is just becoming a thing that gets talked about in these circles in a way that I don't recall it being so like 10 years ago. Um, I agree. I th- I think you're right. I think 10 years ago, you were seeing many more comedians getting maybe 10, 15, 20 years, you started to see comedians get more and more political. And I think that not that science is an extension of politics, although I'm sure that there are critics who would say that on either side. But I mean, you know, um, I think that, you know, once comedians starts like John Stewart sort of opened the door for it to be cool to care about like what was happening in the world. I think that opened the door for people to say, oh, it's cool to care about other things that are happening in the world that are also important. And I think things like YouTube created a market for people to watch entertaining videos. And I think that even, you know, people like Mr. Rogers or, or, or Mr. Wizard and, you know, Bill and Beekman's world. I think those all opened early doors. You know, when people like you and I were kids watching that and now we're adults going, Oh, it's fun to make science fun. I mean, that's how I feel about it. That's why I'm sitting here on the other end of the microphone is I think I fundamentally think that scientists are interesting people to talk to and they have stories to tell like anyone else. And those stories have, you know, real resonance with the people that that hear them. Um, Yeah, definitely. Since you bring up Bill, you had the opportunity of of being co-head writer on season one of Bill Nye Saves the World. That's right. Uh, do you remember when that opportunity came up? Is this something that you had to pursue or it came to you? I'm um, curious because you referenced Bill as somebody you you watched a little bit when you were a kid. So what happened was I was I had been at the Jimmy Fallon show for about three and a half years, and it was a great experience. And I'm great, very grateful for everything it gave me. But I was like a little bit burnt out with like nightly late night. And because it's a really intense schedule. I think that, you know, no matter what show you work on and no matter what the tone of it is, to make a new 47 minutes of television every day is hard, even when it looks not hard. So I was getting a little burnt out. And so I told my agents that I was ready to look for another opportunity. And, you know, there were things offered to me that just weren't right. Or it was kind of like, like, why would I leave this job for, you know, something that wasn't necessarily great? And my agent was like, well, do you like Bill Nye? And I was like, yeah, you've, you know, you know me, you've seen me. I like, you know what I look like. Um, of course I like Bill Nye. And he's like, well, they're doing a Netflix show. Would you like to apply to it as head writer? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I would like to try that. (laughs) And so, so I applied and they hired a head writer of comedy, which was me. And they hired a head writer of science, which was Phil Plate, bad, bad astronomer. Phil's been Um, on the show, friend of the, the, the pod. So he... We know Phil well here. And that's a novel thing to have a, a co-head writer system where somebody's a scientist alongside right. the, the comedy writer. And so you jumped in. I jumped in. I moved I moved to Los Angeles from New York and I took this job and it was a really tight schedule. We had a really tight turnaround. So we had to, it was, it was, it wasn't, it, it wasn't like bad, but it was, it was tough. Like you had to like, you know, we had to figure out what the episodes were. We had to like figure out what we could do what the stage would look like, what we could do on the stage. So there was a lot of pressures on it. Um, but it was also really cool to work with a bunch of scientists that had like these amazing areas of expertise, people who've like consulted on like Star Trek shows and stuff like that. And, you know, we got to, we got to try to make something really weird. 
I was surprised at some of the topical choices of the shows. Can you talk about how some of those ideas uh, came about? Like, I wasn't surprised when episode one was climate change, given what Bill right. has been talking about for a while. But you get to the middle of the season, you're seeing topics that aren't exactly climate change and cancer research anymore. You're seeing some stuff that's a little bit uh, more esoteric. And I say that in like a really admiring kind of way. How did you kind of decide what to cover on the show? Well, a lot of that was up to like, you know, what what Bill wanted to talk about, what Bill was curious about. Before we started the season, you know, Netflix and Bill and, you know, the showrunner and producer sort of sat down and they're like, what are the topics we really want to address? Either that we think like there's some way to help people with this or there's something important to say or maybe there's a misunderstanding in it. And obviously in 13 episodes, you can't talk about everything that you want to cover, but it just ended up in the way where sort of like, okay, these are the topics that like Bill and Netflix really wanted to talk about. And running with that, I mean, there's got to be some stuff that you approached as a writer. You're like, how the heck are we going to cover this? <laughs> sure. sure. There, there's a bunch of stuff. Um, but, it, but that's part of what writing is. I mean, and that's what, that's what writing for any show is, whether it's science or news or just like, you know, if you were just, writing fart sounds as a bicycle goes by. I don't know that what job that is, but this sounds fun. Um, but like, no matter, no matter what you're doing there, like there's going to be days when you're like, I don't know what to talk about, or I don't know what to do with this. Like, especially, you know, when I was writing monologue jokes and update jokes, like you get a news story that's like so horrible, you know, or the current news was so sad. And you're like, what do we, what do we do? What do we talk about? But that's what you have to do is you have to try to find a way to talk about it. And, you know, sometimes you make things that succeed in some people's eyes differently than others. And but that's part of what it is. It's like you have to try to make something for an audience that appreciates it and do your best. That show has definitely faced some criticism, especially around the the show that tackled gender identity. There even climate change brought out a lot of deniers and uh, political opponents how was it navigating some of those topics that you knew were going to be controversial in the room while staying true to the science? How, how was that? What did that process look like? It was it was all about talking to experts. You know, Phil and the science writers talked to so many experts, brought in people, discussed ideas with people. It wasn't like there was like this is here's how it wasn't a, a, a front how to explain it. It wasn't like a back to front approach. We weren't like, here's the conclusion we want to make. Now we're going to build up a case for it. It was like, here's what everyone's telling us. And that's what we had to go with. And I know that things like climate change are controversial. We also said that GMOs aren't dangerous. And we had a lot of people saying like, oh, that means you're pro Monsanto. And it doesn't, you know, like Monsanto definitely has business practices that I can't speak for everyone else, but there's business practices I don't like. But that doesn't mean that the GMOs they make are unsafe. And I think that was a hard thing to navigate. We got that with vaccines, too, you know. We got, you know, based on the episode, we got that there were super pro corporation or that were like super SJW trying to like push like a social communism. And then for some episode, you know, like every episode, there was a different group of people that were kind of offended by what we found. But at the end of the day, everything that we found was based on what experts were telling us. So it, it wasn't like Bill had this idea and he would bring in people that he knew to do this. It was literally a room full of of science advisors and writers going out and researching this and bringing in independent 
uh, folks to to fact check and and build what the the argument is around because I think there's some uh, I asked that question because I think there's some uh, misconception of how these shows are kind of architected when they come to the science. Oh yeah, I mean when Bill says in the, in the if you notice in the gender episode, Bill says you know I learned a lot and honestly we all learned a lot. There was stuff we didn't know. It, you know, we weren't we weren't like a bunch of like people who like came together in some like creepy dark dungeon and decided that we were going to say that like gender can be a spectrum and that gender and sex are technically different things. You know, it was what people were telling us. It was what research was telling us. And the hard thing is people are like, well, you used it to advance an agenda. And we we're like, this is just what we said it is. We weren't saying, you know, like you have to be this. And I understand that like, there's, you know, there's always room for improvement. And maybe there's things that like we could have done better or looking back, like could have explained better. Or like people seem to really misunderstand one point or the other. But at the end of the day, all we said was what the research said, like the whole show from the start was always built on what the research was telling us. In this sort of climate we're in right now, this like nutso climate where science has been politicized and um, the conversation around science seems to be going sideways in a lot of in a lot of outlets. Do you think there's there's a hunger and an appetite for the kind of work you're doing that gives you optimism that people still really care about science? Absolutely. And yeah, it is unfortunate that science sort of has been politicized in this way, although uh, you can also say that science has always been politicized. It's just that we sort of see it under the microscope, which sounds like a terrible pun, but I don't mean it to be. You can see it more under the microscope now just because we live in that era, you know. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, in the 80s, science was politicized when people were talking about like AIDS, you know, there was definitely a lot of people who were like, AIDS isn't AIDS, AIDS can't infect me. The science says it can infect me or you know what I mean? And people had this bad science and people were like, no, this is something we should talk about. And they're like, no, it's it's not real science. It's fake science. You know, uh, I think in a lot of eras, science is politicized. That doesn't mean that, like, you know, we should all kill each other. But it does mean that, you know. We have to we have to look at we have to look at things critically and we have to look at our own like inherent biases a little critically. And that, you know, affects me, too. You know, when when we were doing the GMO episode, I was still and I still have that like weird like, but GMOs are bad, though. Like, even though all the research and everything and our scientists were like GMOs are good or like if not good, it's they're fine. There's they're not harmful. Eating one is not going to change your genetic code, you know, and still in the back of my head, I'm like, but it's but it's bad, right? You know, and it's hard. It's hard to get rid of that emotional response to things, especially when you're presented with a lot of research that says you're wrong. Um, but that said, I think it's also been useful for me, you know, as a person to like have to work on things that sometimes overturned my expectations. And I know that even saying that they overturned my expectations is both like, you know, an invitation for criticism from both sides politically. If you're a writer on a late night comedy show, I feel like you have to develop some sort of tough skin. Oh, of course. Of course. And uh, being a comedian is that I have to admit, like one of the the most harrowing experience I've ever had in my life in terms of facing criticism wasn't at lab meetings or wasn't, you know, when I've had papers rejected. It was when I tried my hand at stand up comedy for the first time and was met by utter silence, just indifference. The sound of indifference was was the um, worst rejection I've ever had in my life. So I imagine you have a tolerance for this in ways that uh, everyday people may not. 
Yeah, but at the same time, you know, I've definitely like, you know, you have to learn the difference between having a thick skin, you know, from trolls and turning a blind eye to like, you know, things that you see it and you're like, okay, that's criticism that I'm going to need to like, look at and try to incorporate in the future, whether it be for stand up or for things that I've done for other shows, for any of the shows I've worked for. And, you know, you sort of like you, you sort of have to know the difference. Because, you know, when like, when we did stuff for Bill show that like made people very mad, you know, on the far right, who are never going to believe that trans people exist, it's kind of like, okay, well, I'm, I don't like that I made you mad. I didn't want to. It wasn't an attack on you. But I, you know, I understand that you're mad and I don't think I convince you. You know, but on the other hand, it was it, it felt valuable when we had people who said, thank you for acknowledging I exist. And we didn't do it to look good. We just did it because that is what the research told us. I've talked to more than a few scientists that are quick to say they are really dismayed at how science is portrayed in the media on TV shows, in the movies. But you really, uh, over the last half hour, you've really given me a lot of optimism ab- about oh, uh, about that stuff. Uh, what message would you have to scientists about how to make this better? Keep reaching out. Keep reaching out. You know, that campaign, the, you know, we really, you know, I know a bunch of us on like a text thread, we're all talking about how much we like that, you know, Bill Meet Science Twitter thing. Keep reaching out. Keep talking about how great your research is. Because the, the the real scientists listening are the real heroes, you know, you know, people like me or well, Phil's a real scientist, people like me, just losers like me alone. Uh, you know, I get to like benefit from people's research and I get to talk about it and I get to try to make it fun and I get to try to make it interesting. But, you know, keep reaching out and keep telling us you're here because, you know, getting your message out is important. And just to, to close, so you saw the Bill Meets uh, a science Twitter hashtag on yeah, Twitter. I, I retweeted a few people. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome because I initially saw that and I thought that people were started it to make fun of Bill a little bit, but it's not, like there were so many amazing diverse scientists right. I'd never heard of that started putting out pictures of, of themselves doing their work. And I thought it was incredible too. And yeah. it's great to hear that that actually penetrated to the level of like the head writer of his show is like yeah i saw that that's great well bill even acknowledged it you know bill bill acknowledged it online and like he he like interacted with a few people uh yeah i mean and it can be so dis- disheartening sort of especially right now when like you have a large segment of the country or the political base at the very least saying that like your research you know at best doesn't matter at worst is a lie that you've made up you know but just keep keep reaching out and keep letting people know what you're doing and the importance of what you're doing. And hopefully, you know, if I do my job right in any way, I can, I don't know, try to make try to make other people see how important it is to research and learn and keep trying to move forward mentally. <laughs> it sounds so dramatic. It sounds so overdramatic, but it is like so important to be like, you know, going to a museum isn't something that you have to do in elementary school and then forget about. Like it should be something that like you enjoy, you should enjoy developing your mind and hopefully by making it fun, we can make even just a couple more people do that. I, 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 sound, I sound so dramatic and I apologize. I, for that. I, I kind of like the comedy writer sounding dramatic Yeah, and, and for the record, Mike, as a veteran D and D player, I don't yeah. think you're a loser for, at all based on the description. <laughs> uh, and uh, I acknowledge, I think scientists are heroes too. 
but it takes great storytellers for their for their work to get out there. So thank you for what you do. Uh, of course, Mike, yeah. Mike Drucker, thanks so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So when thinking about science in Hollywood, you came back from this retreat in Tucson. What's the perspective of directors? I mean, we heard from a writer who really loves science and wants to have more of it in the show. What about directors? Are they on board with this too? Yeah, so I think at first, a lot of us scientists were incredibly nervous, you know, giving our presentations to these really uh, well-known and creative directors. Uh, but it turns out they were an incredibly captive audience. I mean, you know, of course, they wouldn't agree to go on this retreat if they weren't interested in science. They have better things to do, like, you know, hang out with Bono, probably. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, you know, they, and, and, and everybody worked really hard to make sure that their talks were good. And it was a strict 14-minute limit. Um but the interest from the directors was really, to me, among the best kind of an audience that I've ever had. I mean, you know, you're in a room full of scientists and half the scientists are bored. You know, none of the directors gave us any signal that they were bored. What are they looking for? Because when you mention like Tim Miller from Deadpool, like Deadpool is not a movie that I think like, you know, the director really cares about science when I'm watching that movie. But like, what is somebody like that really looking for from a scientist? Yeah, I mean, maybe you wouldn't think so at the outset, but a lot of his projects have involved science. And he's a huge science fiction fan. And to be honest, he was the one person who was like, you know, we were taking a group photo and he was like, let's stop spending time on this group photo and get back to the science. He was really excited, which was, you know, a delight. And I think it's because science can provide stories and characters that the rest of the country really doesn't know much about. I mean, how many people in the country really know personally a scientist? Not that many. And the National Academy of Sciences has data on that. And it's like 18% or something like that. And most of those people think that when they think of a scientist, they think of a physician. <laughs> so, you know, these this is a foray into characters who are passionate about what they do, who are hopefully doing interesting things uh, that the rest of the country and the rest of the world doesn't have a lot of access to. So in that sense, it's perfect for Hollywood. So they're looking at it from just purely a story perspective. They think there's interesting stories people haven't seen there. I mean, I think they're interested in telling the truth, you know, whatever that means. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're always 100% accurate on every detail, but there's a fundamental truth that comes out. We talked a lot about that, actually, about, you know, facts versus truth, um, and not in the alternative facts way. But, you know, how do you tell a truthful story in two hours that gets at something without being bogged down by details? Uh, so I think that that's a, that's a part of it. And so the scientists came from all kinds of disciplines. You know, there was Melissa Franklin, who was involved in discovery of the Higgs boson, uh, you know, to Deep Sea Dawn, who, you know, goes underwater for days at a time. Um, so I think that, you know, they they were interested in, in some of those details and also making contacts, obviously, with scientists who can help them on specific projects. But yeah, I think ultimately, it was about getting story ideas or character ideas. There isn't any tension out there with the idea of, you know, science fiction has outpaced science reality in so many different ways, especially in in terms of how Hollywood has presented it, whether it be, you know, trips to Mars or whatever Interstellar was. But like, there's no tension there that like, 
science reality doesn't fit the story they want to tell? Did you ever get that pushback? You know, I mean, the National Academy of Sciences representatives were pretty clear right up front that, you know, that they go- they have gone beyond in this. They call it a the scientist. I think it's a science and entertainment exchange uh, has gone beyond just trying to make sure that everything is accurate because it's, you know, that, again, doesn't always make great stories if you get everything, you know, exactly right. So, um and, and if they're not great stories, no one's going to go see these films, right? So ultimately, people who work in Hollywood have a huge ability to influence opinions on so many different levels for so many different people, but only if they tell good stories. Um, so so there, there was that that we sort of had to understand at the outset. But the truth is, is that a lot of what these scientists were doing, I mean, not me, but everybody else, had projects that were... I mean, beyond science fiction, like Tony Atala, who grows tissues from like every organ you could imagine in his lab, Uh, 3D prints, you know, organs. I mean, it's just amazing the kind of work that he does and the regenerative uh, view. And so, you know, I I don't think that there they have you have to go too far, uh, you know, and maybe you have to take us a decade or two out from where we are today. But there's still a lot of really amazing science happening. You know, we live in times where the phrase, the war on science has reemerged, and there's pessimism about the future of science. Like all of this talk, like from the conversation with Mike to um, this director summit that you're talking about, gives me a lot of hope that there is a lot of people out there that want to tell better stories with science being a component of that. Yeah, I think they're there. I just wish our government <laughs> realized that and wouldn't cut funding. And, you know, like this late recent budget where, you know, there is a huge push to cut indirect costs. And people think, well, why should I pay the university? I want to pay the scientists. And that sounds really good on paper. But at some point, you know, in order to have those labs, in order to, you know, have that space at the university, that money has to come from somewhere. Where's it going to come from? Tuition? Oh, my goodness. That is a whole other show. Yeah. So let's stop there. Uh, That's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyra Halla, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And if you haven't checked it out already, please check out the first season of my new podcast. It's called Cadence, What Music Tells Us About the Mind. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indra Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at IndraVis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geesh. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by MHZ Choice, which features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. Try MHZ Choice free for 30 days and save 50% off your first month when you visit mhzchoice.com minds and use the code minds at checkout. That's mhzchoice.com m-i-n-d-s. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.